Hi there. Welcome to The Preventable, the podcast giving you a seat at the table with conversations about the intersection of alcohol, drugs, and mental health in everyday lives. Take a seat and join us. Welcome to The Preventable. Uh, Today's episode is brought to you by our amazing friends at Hubbard who give us this awesome studio uh, twice a month, if you can believe that. And uh, they're just really great partners. So shout out to them. Uh, they, uh, They have really allowed this podcast to be what it is today. So we're really appreciative. And speaking of today, uh, with me today is Alexander Hatoum. Uh, He is an assistant professor at WashU. And we sort of like uh, Google stalked you to have you come in and tell us more about what you're doing. So thank you for saying yes. Happy, happy that you're here. Thank you for having me. So Alexander. Okay. Wait, I, we were talking before we started recording and I kept saying like, stop, stop, stop. Cause I want to keep this, like, I want to find out in real time. So the reason, first of all, that you're here is because you and a lot of other co-authors have put out a pretty incredible, expansive study, right? About human genomes and substance use disorder. Correct? Yeah. Kind of. Okay. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's correct. Yeah. Can you talk to me about the purpose of the study? Like, how did we get to the study? We don't have to talk about what you found yet, but just talk to me about the purpose of the study. Right. So we know that part of the risk for substance use disorders is due to inherited genetic liability. Correct. So I'm not going to say that it's like a genetic disease like cystic fibrosis, right? We're going to say that people have an, certain genetic variants will have an increased risk. So like just because your dad had a substance use disorder doesn't mean that you will, but it puts you at a higher risk. Exactly. Okay. Right. And so we're interested in that. We're interested in specifically this genetic risk factor. And we want to know biologically, what are you inheriting, right? Like what is the molecular processes that might be different in someone who inherits this risk to addiction and then manifests addiction, right? And so in order to do that, we take samples from around the globe and we combine them into a single analysis. And in each of these samples, what they've done is they scan individuals with a substance use disorder and without a substance use disorder. And then they've done a scan for what genetic variants might be associated with the substance use disorder. And when you say comparing people that have a substance use disorder and and do not, we're talking like that they meet the diagnostic criteria. So the DSM, they meet diagnostic criteria. Yeah, DSM. DSM, ICD code, this is global. So there's Got, several different oh, I see, I see, right, use, okay. Yeah, essentially similar to the DSM. They have to have criteria for the disorder. And a lot of the samples, the people who are controls that we're comparing to, they've had some sort of exposure, right? So okay. like, they're not just, the controls aren't just people who have never tried opiates. These are people who have been prescribed opioids but did not progress to developing opioid use disorder, for example. Oh, or like example. somebody who drinks, you know, three nights a week but has not developed like an alcohol use disorder or something. Yeah, they okay. do control. Okay, excellent. So you have the control group and then, or you have people who have the substance use disorder and people who do not have a substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. And now you're really diving in and, and looking at the genes. Yeah, and so thanks to human gene mapping being what it is now, we can actually do a scan across the whole genome. And so rather than have a hypothesis about what molecular mechanisms are there, we can scan the whole genome and then figure out which specific areas of the genome are associated. So what are the areas of the genome that distinguish people with and without a substance use disorder? Not to be an idiot here. I mean, Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So you might have to break this down for me. When you say that you are scanning the human genome, Mm -hmm. what does that mean? Yeah, so at each uh, area of the genome, you're going to have different alleles. Okay, so people will inherit. uh, Some areas will vary uh, across individuals. And so those areas in which there is variability, you will either have like an A or you will have an alternative allele like a G, a C, or a T. What is an allele if somebody is listening and has no idea what you're talking about? So that is the smallest piece of the genome. So the genome can essentially be broken up into its smallest pieces, which are like um, on each side there, you will have two alleles when you inherit from your father and when you inherit from Mm. your mother, right? Mm. And so... The what we're essentially trying to do is see if people have one allele versus another at any given point. We run a model at every single of the millions of points. We say if you have this allele versus this allele, then are you at higher risk? Mm. And then we move to the next little point and run it again. And so we're just running millions of And you're of doing models. this all across the world. Yeah. So every person who's so every person who gets funding to study this has their own sample and then they run it in their oh. own sample. And then they give their sample to us, and we combine all of their little studies into one large-scale study. Who funded this large-scale study? Uh, So this large-scale study was funded by the National Institutes of Health, uh, specifically the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Mm -hmm. And then I'm funded by the National Institute for Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse. Um, Those aren't my favorite names, person-centered language being what they are. Yeah, It's kind of like SAMHSA. It's like... You know, like we're still using the word abuse. And that's one of the reasons why we ended up changing our name. But it is what it is. So, okay, so you get Mm -hmm. this funding. And I think what some people probably don't realize who are listening, um, who've never had an experience with a research study is like it doesn't just happen. Right. You have Mm -hmm. to apply for the funding. That takes a while. You have to get approval to do it. So this has been in the works for quite some time. Right. Mm-hmm. And what, how long has it been in the works for? Um, I mean, the first few studies that go into the sample, some of them are as old as 2009. Oh, um, no way. I took over the data and started combining all the analyses about four years ago. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And you published the research a couple months ago? Yeah, about two months ago. It was finally published. Whoa. So it really, I mean, you kind of are speaking our love language. Like when we talk about prevention, we're, we're saying like that's not something that pays off immediately. Like you're mm-hmm. doing this work and it, it there's a long one, runway there. Yeah, that's that's how science is. Yep. You know, you got it. It's a lot of slow, careful work to get to the next step. Um, and, you know, I benefit from the fact that a lot of people did slow, careful work before me. And then I come in and take all of the, the glory by combining all of the data. Right. So, yeah. And I have no like, uh, you know, I don't get funded by WashU or anything like that, but. What's crazy to me that I don't know that people understand is that WashU does an, an incredible amount of research into substance use disorders, yeah, like but... like an incredible amount. Mm-hmm. D- is that um, through one particular school? Is that a particular like priority that the school has, or do you know? Um, I think it's just that the people with that interest find each other, and then we found each other at St. Mm. Louis, you know? Interesting. It's also one of the top medical schools in the country, so you're right. going to find a lot of research in a lot of areas there, right? Like, there's a lot of substance use disorder research, but the psychiatry department in general is just a fantastic 
research uh, environment. So you're going to find other psychiatric disorder research there. And then, you know, Seitman Center, you're going to find a lot in cancer. True. And the people who are studying cancer are inherently going to be interested in substance use disorders at one point because heavy use increases your risk. Right. So, you know, research feeds into other research. And so you're at a great environment like Wash U. You're going to find a lot of great things. Are you from here? I am not. Okay. So you came here specifically for... The research that was happening and exactly what you're describing. Yeah. So my mentor, um, Arpana Agarwal, she runs a training grant Yes. that uh, recruited me to study substance use disorders. She's so, a friend of the agency. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you know her. Yes. She's fantastic. Um, she runs a training grant and she was basically like called me up and was like, hey, do you want to come here for this program? I know you've studied. I, I started in like more neuroscience based phenotypes, cognitive neuroscience ones. And she was offering to retrain me in addiction. Huh. And so I actually, this project I proposed to, I was like, well, actually, I do have an interest in addiction, and this is what I'd like to do, is this this project where we combine data across the world into this single factor. And she was like, sure, okay, come here. We'll teach you about addiction. Um, and that's how I ended up coming to Wash U. Okay, so we will get to the findings of your study in just a few mm-hmm. moments. But I think it's so cool because there's a lot of kids when they are like, you know, in kindergarten, Like my niece, for example, she wants to be an astrophysicist. Maybe she will be an astrophysicist. She's been wanting to do that for a long time, which is a very like niche, like, you know, but there's a lot of kids that are like, they watch Bill Nye, the science guy or Mr. Wizard or whatever. And they're like, I want to be a scientist Mm -hmm. when I grow up. Like, I want to be like, you're doing it. Have you always wanted to do this? Uh, For a while, I wanted to be a naturalist. What is that? A naturalist is like a scientist, but in nature. Like, oh, okay. Like a naturalist. Okay, uh, I get yeah, it. Like, okay. You know, like I wanted to be a scientist that went into like the Amazon and explored Oh, things, cool. Okay. Um, or Great Barrier Reef. Uh, but so, yeah, I've always liked science. Um, and then as I got older, I wanted to be an inventor, and I was like interested in that. But then I, you know, I slowly found my way into behavioral genetics because I became interested in behavior, animal behavior, human behavior in undergrad. And um yeah, and then I worked in labs in undergrad. And if anyone ever wants to be a scientist, the number one thing you can do, go to a major research university, volunteer in labs. In a lab. Yeah. yeah. And you'll find a niche. You'll find research you're good at. And I've heard, like, it's not exactly, like, the most exciting thing, but you kind of, like, need mm-hmm. to have some lab experience so that you you can really figure out, like, what area is interesting to you, right? Yeah. yeah. And how you might want to run a lab someday when you're running a lab, so, yeah. So you were interested in human behavior, animal behavior, and you also said that you had an interest in addiction and substance use disorder. If you don't mind my asking, like, where did that come from or did that just, like, you just found it fascinating? Uh, a multitude of factors. So first, I found it fascinating uh, just from the start. Like, it is just an interesting area of work. Um, but. I was starting to discover research, behavior, genetics, all around the time where people begin dis- developing substance use disorders on that age group where my friends were beginning to develop those disorders, right? Mm-hmm. So as a person with a scientific mind, you start to... Wonder it, why. Yeah. You start to look in, as, look at their relatives, look at them, and you start to question, is this, what's, what's going on here? You know, like, why is it happening at this age? Why is it happening to certain people? Like, this person has a very similar experience to me, like... What, what is the difference here that's mm. happening with them? You know, And so it, it becomes an interest in both your life and then it becomes an interest in your research. Um, wow. 
Yeah. So I wouldn't say I wouldn't say research is me search in every context for addiction. Like I feel like people can just see others and then become addiction uh, interested in addiction research. But I think it's an important area of study because we know that as you know people age, that early on it's one of the biggest risk factors for those uh, earlier mm-hmm. uh, morbidity factors that people see is that in, is substance use and substance use disorders. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, and if you're a young person, that's that's kind of what you're surrounded with at the time. Yep. And it's all about your peers and mm-hmm. what's happening and what are they doing. And, you know, when we talk to kids, because we, as I think you know, you know, we go into classrooms beginning in kindergarten all the way up through 12th grade. Now, obviously, we're not talking to kindergartners about drugs. But when we talk to middle schoolers and high schools about high schoolers about um, risk factors for substance use, you know, we always drive home the fact like we always say, like, what do you think the number one risk factor is? And people are always like, well, like genetics or, well, if you were a survivor of some sort of abuse and like, yes, like trauma, definitely. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's related. Definitely. We, we know that, um, if somebody uses before the age of 15 while their brain is still, you know, being mm-hmm. hardwired and still very under construction, we know that that's a huge risk factor. And heritability, right? Am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. Which is like if your parents, is that, am yeah, I using your, it? Your inherited risk for. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Heritability is kind of like the population's general risk. So just did you inherit risk for substance use disorder? Family history. You family history. Yeah. Just, just like history. with uh, COPD or diabetes or whatever. What's the family history of the risk for substance use disorders? Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell me what your research has found and break it down for the people who are listening and like, you know, in layman's terms, tell us what you found. Okay. So let's take a quick step back. Yes. Substance use disorders are heritable. There is some effect of genetics in influencing whether or not an individual in in the population will develop a substance use disorder. Okay. Okay. So we know that genetics are important from years of twin and family studies. And then we've done all these large-scale genomic studies in specific substances, right? So we have a study in cannabis use disorder, opioid use disorder, alcohol use disorder, and tobacco use disorder, right? But when we think about substance use uh, disorders in the clinic and in research, we often split them into, like, a particular drug. Yes. Right. It drives me nuts, right? Yeah. Yeah. And usually that's based on where the money is. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's be real, right? So it's like there was a lot of research around opioid use disorder when the opioid epidemic kind of hit. And now I think we're trying to catch up with some of the cannabis research because of what's happening around legalization. So, so yeah, it's been very drug specific. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And it's also because clinical trials, it's just easier, easier. to stick with an individual with a uh, single substance yep. use disorder. But most people don't use a single substance. Exactly. Like yeah. most people are poly users, right? Yeah. Okay. And not only that, but people who are poly users and people who meet criteria in particular, who are poly substance use disorder cases, they have worse outcomes. They're the people really in need of treatment. And then they're yeah. the people often ignored by genetic and clinical research. Yeah, they're right? not the person who's like having a couple of beers with their friend like a couple of nights a week and then can like turn it off and, and don't have any damage to their lives. This isn't the person who like goes on a float trip and smokes some weed. Like these are people who are heavily using and it's impacting mm-hmm. their lives. Yeah. 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 And it's they're also at risk for other issues uh, due to the substance use. Absolutely. Disorder. Right. Um, And so these are the people who 
are worse off, yet research hasn't always covered them. Mm. So the idea was, okay, well, we have all these individual studies. Can we use uh, statistical models in order to combine the information and gain some sort of insight into this broader addiction risk? And so that's what we did. We developed something that we called the addiction risk factor model. And what this does is it splits up these these biological risk into this is a general like risk towards using substances versus these specific risk factors that might direct you towards a certain substance hmm. right so there's individual so like there's this general risk which we found was a dopaminergic regulatory system where say that genes, again slower yeah, yeah which is kind of like a dopaminergic regulatory system so it's genes that influence your intake and response to reward Dopamine, the pleasure neurotransmitter. Right, yes, right. okay. And so it's things that regulate dopamine even mm-hmm. more, even uh, broader than that. And then we noticed for specific substances, it was things that tended to like bind or influence that substance. So for example, it's genes in your liver that process alcohol that might lead you more likely to be someone who uses uh, alcohol or develop an alcohol use disorder versus another substance use disorder. So it's not the brain? It's your liver? Well, the brain is also involved. So the brain is here in this general addiction factor. And then there are specific brain and liver factors for alcohol. But the biggest genetic risk factor specific to alcohol does deal with some of these liver metabolizing genes. Okay. Right? Whereas this general addiction risk, that's all going to be largely neurological. Right. And then, but like if you look at tobacco, the largest risk factor are genes that influence nicotinic receptors. So receptors that make nicotine more pleasurable Mm -hmm. are going to be the things that lead you towards selecting, say, tobacco or having a tobacco use disorder. So there's this general and then specific risks. Right. And that's what we found. So we essentially have five different molecular patterns, processes that we can study now. One for each of these substances, opioids, cannabis, tobacco and alcohol. And then this broad addiction risk that influences all of these individual disorders and then people's risk factors towards selecting multiple um, substances. And so we're able to create those two patterns and it's a very data driven study. So you Mm. can create those patterns and then you can say, okay, now. What relates to those patterns? Well, we know addiction relates to them, but is there anything that relates in the reverse that's like a medication or a treatment? Uh huh. Right? Uh-huh. Clinical studies historically don't study the polysubstance use disorder dimension, but what if we can say, look, this is something that will most likely target that dimension? Can we start to engage in clinical trials? Can we improve our chances that clinical trials will become successful? And genetic data is great at doing that. It's great at telling you, look, this is where you can drill down for new treatments. And so the rest of the study followed up on those patterns to try and find out what are the most likely uh, effective treatments that could be extended from understanding the biology of substance use disorders generally and then for each specific disorder. So is that where you like dove into things like Vivitrol or things like that? Did you get that specific or not necessarily? There, we, we tested about 840 drugs, so I don't <laughs> actually have off the top of my head which were successful. It's, it's okay. I was yeah. just, just, but like as an yeah. example, were those types of things you looked at? Yeah, like think of Verena Cleaner, um, the, the name of Chantix, you know? Yeah, sure, for smoking, yeah. Yeah, that came up, right? And that's, we were able to test the efficacy and support of most current medications for substance use disorders and then say, look, there's also other medications on here that show a similar degree of support in terms of the molecular evidence. So those would be a good, fruitful area of future research in order to look for treatments that target this like broader dimension that might help with polysubstance use disorders. So you mentioned, I mean, you're sort of like right where my brain is going, like what does this, does this study, what does it lead us to in the future? And so you said one thing might be like looking at 
other medications that might be effective in treating. Um, mm-hmm. Are there other sort of um, possibilities that this study has opened up? And, and where is your brain going in terms of next steps for you? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. So this next one, I'll give a warning that you have to be very careful with where your brain goes with uh, genetic testing because, well, we can develop polygenic risk scores from this kind of data and say, okay, this is this person's genetic risk. Not everyone who has a high genetic risk will develop the substance Correct. use disorder. Right? So we're thinking about patient stratification more so than like, okay, this person has a substance use disorder. Now can we use this genetic data to tell us more about what treatments will help that individual rather than like the dystopian thing of thinking beforehand, like, oh, this person's going to develop a substance use disorder. So it's like yeah. kind of like with breast cancer, right? Yeah. So with women, there's, I don't know the exact specifics, but there's like a gene, right? Mm-hmm. And if you have the gene, it makes you more likely to develop a particularly aggressive, deadly form of breast cancer. So what some people do with that information is that then they just go ahead and they get a mastectomy. That's not necessarily what I'm hearing you say. You're saying if this gene is identified, not doomsday prepper, I'm going to develop a substance use Mm -hmm. disorder, but maybe, A, what can I do to alter my lifestyle, maybe, to where Mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily happen, but B, if it does happen, here would be some treatments that could help me manage that. Right. So, yeah. So, we're looking more in the context of, I guess, to put it more simply, we're looking more in the context of how do we help people who already have developed a substance use disorder and what does this tell us? Um, And you can use this for a lot of different research purposes. One is treatments. Yeah. Um, Another is looking at things like self-medication, right? Like, so Mm self-medication relates strongly to uh, the addiction risk factor. Sure. Right. Of course it does. If you're self-medicating to cope with stress or uncomfortable feelings or trauma. Yeah, exactly. We also know that people who self-medicate, they're not using drugs that would necessarily um, treat the problem that they're that they're experiencing, right? So we can ask questions about the degree to which self-medication is due to maybe a general addiction risk factor Mm. or people who are self-medicating going towards this addiction pathway versus a more psychiatric pathway, right? Like what what might be the the etiological cause of their specific dysfunction? I think those are the kinds of questions that our research is taking us to. And we don't have answers for those. Yeah, yeah, sure, right. Right. That's where I think we're going to go in the future is more with this, how can we stratify people to figure out what is the cause of their problem? Would there be a way, because I'm all about prevention, prevent ed is all about prevention, Mm. is there any interest in looking at your study and thinking about how we could get in front of it or not yet? Yeah, so there is. Of course, there always is with genetic data. Well, you say of course, but not everybody is like, you know, all about prevention. So Right, right. We always have to be careful when it comes to prevention in terms of using genetic data. Mm. Um, So I've published on this with opioid use disorder before. But if you use a model without without knowing, like, the other risk factors, especially the demographic risk factors. Interesting. Mm -hmm. You run the risk of falsely classifying people as they will suffer from a substance use disorder. So you have to be incredibly careful with uh, prevention in terms of trying to predict, like, in terms of this omnipotent, like, genetic predictor, right? Because it just doesn't exist. Yes. There's many risk There's, factors. It's a lot of things going into it. It's like when schools mm-hmm. will label kiddos at risk and will put them in certain buckets, certain groups, mm-hmm. because they 
you know, fill in X, you know, checkbox or whatever. But that is discounting maybe a lot of other things that are going on. So I think what you're saying is you don't want to put people in buckets based on genetic information only because there's a lot of other things that go into the mix. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, you have to. So this is just fascinating. Patient stratification. Are you the life of the party at parties? Uh, I'm pretty much a nerd, so. <laughs> well, I just think this is amazing. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm the guy who everyone's talking about, like, one of the most interesting topics, which is, like, drugs and addiction. And I'm like, oh, I studied that. Here, dopaminergic signaling. Everyone's like, all right, bye. They're like, peace <laughs> out. Like, <laughs> it's like That's not what I want to. I want to talk about whiskey, but not like that. That. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. So, but yeah. I mean, like, it is It is interesting where our where we can go with this research yeah. um, and what the practical applications of genetic work are. But I'm not sure that it's, it's like we said at the beginning, it's going to take very careful, slow processes in order to guarantee that this works. And we need community partners like you guys, because we need to ensure that we aren't just jumping into something and saying like, okay, we're going to completely change and disrupt the way addiction is handled. Totally. Cause that's just going to miss people. Right. Right. Like, Ab- absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I'm switching gears a smidge, but not really, because you were talking about the fact that you're also, you you have a lot of titles, which I totally appreciate because you've worked your butt off for those titles. So good for you. And one of the things that you're researching or a professor of is artificial intelligence. I started working with, yeah, I've, I've gained an affiliation at the Artificial Intelligence and the Internet of Things and Medicine Institute at WashU, which is a a recent uh, project that WashU has undertaken. And you were talking about the, I guess, risks of using artificial intelligence mm-hmm. for some treatment modalities? Yeah, yeah. So let's, okay. we can talk about this because this is an area I've published on before as well. Yeah, I mean, this is like, I, you can come to any party I'm hosting because I find this very fascinating. Keep talking. Yeah, so... I specifically looked at models of opioid use disorder. So let's let's go back to this naive idea. So uh, somebody who has l- less of an understanding of substance use disorder, of substance use dis- of individuals that suffer from these disorders, will think, okay, well, clearly the problem is just in the opioid itself. And if somebody with high genetic risk takes an opioid, boom, they're going to move towards addiction. Correct. Which is an oversimplification, right? We know that there's more complicated factors and involved in prevention than just them taking that opioid. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Now, the idea has been that if you can create a model that will help you somehow understand that, that you could just say, no, this person shouldn't take an opioid. But then you might also be denying patients, like pain patients. um, Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Uh, Which we saw as the pendulum swung from mm -hmm. like, well, let's just deny people from getting the medicine. And it's like, well, now we're, you know, causing people to go elsewhere or we're like denying their legitimate pain that they're in and making them go without so how do we do something in between right exactly exactly and so that that nuance that do something in between that's what organizations like what you guys do and that's vital now what people are trying to do to disrupt is say oh i can just create a model from genetic data and then let the ai figure it out the ais do not figure out good answers to these problems yet okay and that's what i've essentially published on so if you Attempts to train a uh, machine learning model is what we typically call AI in the, in the literature. Machine learning model. Yeah. Okay. If you attempt okay. to train a machine learning model with with naive to uh, population stratification, like the way that people 
uh, tend to cluster in populations, and you even if you use genetic variants, what you end up doing is misclassifying individuals. And what's worse is that the individuals that are most likely to be misclassified are populations of individuals from minoritized groups. Mm. That's because people from minoritized groups typically are more um, mixtures of different populations. Like they have ancestry from Europeans because of the Europeans took advantage of their ancestors. Mm. Well, they also have ancestry from other geographic nationalities because they were brought here. Mm. So then the models pick up that. If you have a sample in which there's any imbalance in looking at people of minoritized populations, they pick up, oh, the minoritized populations have an imbalance, therefore my genetic model is just going to predict that, and you're going to get false prediction, right? You have to control for these, these processes of population stratification and in, the, in the short run, and in the long run, you have to have at least some sort of nuance to the way in which you train the models and think about the context of their deployment, right? Otherwise, you're just going to hurt people when you're trying to do good. So you're saying like robots are not the answer in this work? Yeah, robots are not the answer. I, like I they have, could be, they could be part of maybe. Yeah, I, I have a saying at Washi that I like to tell people, which is, we don't need robots, we need cyborgs. Um, you don't, you don't want to replace the individual who's treating a yeah. substance use disorder. You want to augment their ability to treat the substance use disorder. You want to improve their ability to huh. make the right decisions. But you don't want to take away the decision rights from them and give it to an algorithm, right? And that is... I think we just found our podcast title. Hmm. So we don't need robots. We need cyborgs. Yes. Oh, it's two top, two separate topics here. There's also the, the larger addiction study. Right. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Wow. I, I mean, you realize, like the amazing and I'm not just blowing smoke up your butt but like you do you realize like the amazingly groundbreaking work you're doing for this field I, I appreciate you saying that I mean it's not just me I have a I lot know. Of strong collaborators there's 180 people on my paper with me all of which fantastic people I have to say um, and I'm not just saying that because they're scattered all over the world and I like to travel the world they really right. are great people <laughs> yeah but I mean do you guys like ever sit back with like you know, an NA cocktail, and you're like, "Hey, like we're we're doing some good here." We try to do good, but we're also just naturally curious people. Mm. Um, we're like dogs chasing our tails. Sometimes it's like we're never going to catch it, but we're going to keep trying because <laughs> that's what research is. You know, you have an answer, but then there were these limitations, and then there's future questions. And so I feel like we do spend a lot of time looking on the horizon. Um, but yeah, I do like the research. I do like it's fun. I don't. I have fun doing it. Um, my favorite days are the days where I just get to sit and analyze data, you know, hmm. so. Well, really and truthfully, like on behalf of the field, um, thank you. Thank you to your collaborators on all of these studies that you're talking about. I mean, you are helping us think through how to prevent, intervene, treat, recover from uh, manage, fill in the verb here. Like you are helping us tackle the substance use disorder. You could say crisis, you could say epidemic, whatever, but it impacts everybody. Like, let's just be real, you know? So the fact that you all are doing the work that WashU and NIH and folks like that are funding it and are committed to making it happen, like that's just pretty damn cool. So thank you. Well, thank you guys too. I mean, you're doing the practical work. Right. I'm more than just an ivory tower elitist because I can talk to people like you. So. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really cool and it and it really is a partnership. So 
Thank you so much for being here. If if people wanted to read the study, like where would they find it? How how would they? I mean, I guess we could link to it, but is there is it in a journal? It is in a journal, and currently it is behind a paywall. I have okay. submitted it to the federal government to Ooh, go after. Yeah, cool. so it will be out of the paywall, hopefully in three to four months. I've worked very hard to try to ensure that it gets around that and into the public eye. Um, so there's that. If you go to my Twitter, there is an, a complete summary with f- images of the figures. That, All right. What's your Twitter? That's Promote it. Um, it's Alexander S-H-A-T-O-U-M. Um, so yeah, just... Do you have a blue check mark? I do not have a blue check mark. I don't mark. either. It's fine. No, it's I, fine. I'm not I, paying for it. Yeah, I'm not no. either. I don't have that many followers. I, just, <laughs> I like to summarize the paper. I just wanted to make it accessible however I could. And then if you look at my name, there's also a preprint that is free on BioArchive. And that's not the final version of the paper, but you can read it and get a lot yeah, of the information. Yeah, you can get the gist. Yeah. Thank you so Hopefully. much for being here. I mean, I just, I've, I've learned so much. Um, really appreciate it. Uh, if you liked what you heard, if you want more with people like Alexander, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to The Preventable. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at The Preventable, brought to you ad-free by PreventEd. PreventEd works to reduce or prevent the harms of alcohol and other drug use through education, intervention, and advocacy. Please visit their website at prevented.org. Like what you heard? Rate, review, and subscribe to stay up to date with what we are serving on The Preventable.